Welcome to this episode of our In Conversation series. I'm Andrew Guile, a solicitor and a director here at GN Lawn, and with my colleague. Uh, my name's Luke, uh, and I'm one of the associate solicitors in the Police Actions Department. This episode, we're going to be looking at Articles 10 and 11 of the European Convention um, the right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and association. We're going to be focusing on um, the operation of those rights, specifically as it relates to the sort of cases that we come across. Yes. Uh, as they relate to uh, individuals, and particularly in relation to protesters. Um, obviously, lots of cases involving Article um, 10 in particular uh, often involve newspapers uh, and the media, but we're not going to be looking at, at it from that side of things. We're going to be looking at two particular cases, um, looking at how uh, the police operation of um, their powers for arresting people for, for a breach of the peace, either an actual or an imminent breach of the peace, and then we're also going to come on towards the end of the um, video to look at some more topical issues, including things like drill music and yeah. um, uh, and new uh, criminal behaviour orders, which have replaced um, ASBOs. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn over to Luke, um, and you can kick us off with some of the basics, uh, setting out the rights and, and how they work. Yeah, so certainly um, we're looking at the ECHR. I mean, certainly putting sort of breach of the peace on one side, that, you know, it has existed in terms of common law before our Human Rights Act, so it's certainly not something that's only really existed since then. Yeah. But looking at the rights, I mean, just to give a basic idea, you've got two types of rights. You've got what's called absolute rights and qualified rights, a bit of jargon, but essentially absolute rights, you're talking about Article 2, 3 and 4, which is about your right to life, uh, right not to be tortured, inhumane treatment, uh, and 4 is largely about slavery and, and those sort of aspects. And so when they talk about absolute rights, it means you are guaranteed those rights. The state cannot do anything to interfere with those rights. Mm. And the most obvious example is we don't have the death penalty in our country, which would obviously interfere with, let's say, for example, your Article 2 right, right to life. Yeah. We're going to be looking at Article 10 and 11. Like you said, they, they, they are a little bit interchangeable, certainly in terms of the cases we're looking at. They're not the only qualified rights, but what those rights essentially mean is... You have the right, let's say, for example, to protest or Article 8, which we're not talking about too much today, but that's right to private and family life. Yes, you have these rights, but there are certain situations where the state, perhaps in the form of the police or otherwise, can interfere with those rights, so you can't enjoy them as fully as you would perhaps like. Yeah. And that's sort of balancing the right of the individual versus the rights of the public, perhaps, uh, let's say, for example, not to be subject to criminal behaviour, let's say, which is sometimes the argument in regards to, say, breach of the peace. Yeah, so, so the sort of, I mean, another example of the conflicts you can get is that sometimes, you know, the press's freedom of speech, yes. their Article 10 right, can conflict with an individual's Article 8 right to privacy. Yes. And, and I'm sure anyone watching this video will be familiar with the sort of cases that have been brought up in, in that regard with famous people challenging and asserting their Article 8 rights and the press trying to push back with their Article 10 rights. And that's where you have this human rights um, balance, balance where they actually sort of conflict with each other and they're saying, well, this is my right. And the other person says, well, this is my right. And the court has to say... You know, Which one takes primacy. Exactly. Um, but then, of course, you have other situations with the police when they've got a duty yes, uh, and they have powers to arrest people in certain circumstances. And again, it's a question of looking at the balance uh, and a word we'll, we'll, we'll come on to a bit later, you know, proportionality as to yeah, what's, exactly. what's appropriate in the circumstances. Yeah, so exactly. So the two cases we're looking at, we're looking at the first one, which is um, 
they're both sort of the first one is a, a House of Lords case again that's before the Supreme Court sort of came into being which essentially replaced the House of Lords so top courts the set, um, which is uh, this case of Laporte and it's versus the Chief Constable of Gloucestershire 2006 case we're a little bit old but it's, it's still seen as a, a lead case for this sort of issue uh, and more recently sort of coming towards sort of a 2017 case is Hicks uh, versus the Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis so yeah. Metropolitan Police 2017, so a lot more recent, and it does mention Laporte, so having some idea, and certainly us looking at Laporte, it is, is quite helpful in that regard. It means we get some idea of, of how it was decided in 2006 and how it's still being looked at, certainly uh, modern day. Sure. Um, so I think, firstly, we'll kick off with Laporte, um, yeah. our sort of 2006 so, case. So tell us, tell us what happened in there, what are the, what are the basic facts? Right, so I mean the basic facts is the claimant, um, in this case uh, Laporte, um, she was a peace protester, sorry, uh, and so in 2003 uh, when we had this issue of the Iraq war you had a lot of, uh, and it was quite a countrywide you know, felt feeling about anti-war and sort of the different sides if you like as to the rights and wrongs of it. Not that I intend to go through any of those today whatsoever, but the bottom line is she opposed the Iraq war. And so at a particular point, um, there's a particular uh, place in Fairford where you had an army base uh, and there was a protest that was set to go ahead on a particular date. And I think the date here I've got is 22nd of March 2003. So again, the actual when this all happened, quite a long time ago. Now, there's a lot of information in the actual uh, judgment itself. I mean, the judgment itself does run for a good 150-odd paragraphs, which I've thankfully summarised, which makes my life much easier for this purpose. Mm. And, you know, to get some idea of what was happening around Fairford, you know, there was um, issues in regards to particular protest groups who were sort of breaking into the, the camp, if you like, or at least that was what was alleged. And so, in general, there was some idea of police issues in regards to potential or at least alleged disorder that might break out as a result. Now, there's no disagreement in regards to all the right um, sort of procedures being done by those who wanted to do the protest, so notification of the police in advance. And, and essentially, the police were then able to sort of make a plan for this protest yeah. uh, within that context. So, they, so the police anticipated that there might be problems yes. and perhaps had some intelligence that there, that there might be people intending to be violent. Yes. Um, but as I, as I recall it, Laporte was on uh, one of three coaches. Yes. Um, and the, the, the conclusion of the court seemed to be that it was accepted that there were people on, the, on those coaches, the majority of people on those coaches had peaceful intentions yes. and should yes. have been able to exercise their Article 1011 rights. Yeah. Um, and yet there was a small minority on, the, on, on, on those co- coaches, um, somewhat unusually known as Wombles, yes. I believe. Well, that's the thing. Um, so were, had, had, had less peaceful intentions. Yes. And so, so on the day, you've got some people ready at the protest. And then, like you say, you have three coaches leaving from London hmm. uh, with the purpose of taking them to that protest. And I think it was 120 passengers in total. Yeah. And like you mentioned with the Wombles, it's a particular organisation where the police, I suppose, suspected them of potentially having what they call articles to disrupt the protest. Um, so the police, uh, with their sort of alleged intel- intelligence, rather, they, they do stop the coaches outside uh, Fairford, um, and they stopped them in a lay-by, basically. Yeah. 
search the coaches, take away the offending articles, and this is where the case starts to sort of develop, if you like, because yeah. at this point, this is when the particular officer who will come to has the decision, once he's taken those offending articles away, to either let them continue the journey mm-hmm. to the protest, or what actually happens in reality is the officer then decides to essentially order the coaches to go all the way back to London without allowing any of those people, you know, barring a couple who were sort of already down as sort of marked people who were going to do speeches on that Yeah, day. so a couple of people, a couple of speakers were allowed off. Yes. But Laporte was also uh, intended to be a speaker, but she wasn't allowed off. Yeah. Um, and as, as I recall, that she took the case to court on two grounds. Firstly, that she was prevented, or the whole coach was prevented from from carrying on to um, to the demonstration, um, but they weren't just turned around, were they? They were, you know, if you can frog march a, a coach, they were frog marched back yeah, to London. They, they they were they were well, police I mean, they escorted were back to London as such on that coach yeah. Um, yeah. for that particular period. So it was two things: one, um, preventing prevention from going forward, and then the manner in which they were turned around and, and escorted back to London. It was those yeah. two issues, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that's where, so certainly in the judgment, paragraph 14 talks about, like you say, prevention of her travelling to the demonstration, and number two, for the forcible return, is what they call it, to London. Mm. And, and those are the two issues. Um, and permission gets granted, but, I mean, essentially at the sort of lower court um you get the prevention of her travelling to the demonstration. That's not upheld as unlawful. The second one, the forcible return, is upheld, um, and then it sort of, you know, it comes to the, the, in this case, House of Lords within that context. Yeah. Um, certainly, just you know, part of the police strategy on the day, they had what's called a Section 60 in place. Mm. Now, this is the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994, uh, and this is something we've come across a few times. Yeah, it happens quite a lot. At, um normally to search for knives or, or weapons, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's a situation where um, a senior police officer, superintendent, I believe, um, can, within a certain confined area, and not often this is the case in London, mm-hmm. they can put it in place for a day or a couple of days, but for a limited period of time, and, and it gives police officers the power um, to search individuals without any reasonable suspicion at all. They can, they can randomly search people for weapons, and so the justification for putting it in place is because, you know, for instance, there might have been a lot of knife crime in the area at the time. Um, and as at the date of uh, um, filming this particular video today, as we sit here, is the 14th of November 2018, um, there have been um, a shocking number of knife deaths yesterday yes. or the day before, a, a murder with a crossbow. Um, some, some awful incidents recently and it, it's those sorts of situations or fear intelligence that there's going to be some sort of gang related um, disturbance planned on social media or something might lead to a section 60 order being put in place mm-hmm. but the important thing from a legal perspective is that it gives the police the right to search people without reasonable suspicion um, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the important point Yeah. so I mean I'm just going to skip forward a little bit to sort of the middle sort of paragraphs, or rather sort of around, in this case, we're looking at sort of paragraph 60 onwards. This is where uh, Lord Roger ends up writing his views on it. Now, the actual judges, although they come to the same sort of conclusion generally to, to uphold it in terms of the case, that their reasons for doing so are 
slightly different in areas. Uh, I'm not going to go through necessarily all the differences because there are five judges, but the key bit, certainly when it, go, when it comes to, let's say, paragraph um, 67, around that, it talks about what, how you would define imminence. And it defines imminence, in this case, as likely to happen. And sort of following a little bit further, paragraph 71, it talks about Mr. Lambert. And now Mr. Lambert, just to... He's a senior officer, isn't he? Yeah, so he's the chief superintendent uh, who had direction and control of policing for this demonstration. So he's the the decision maker on the day. And this question of imminence looks at at the police's um, use of the power to arrest somebody for a breach of peace. So to arrest somebody for the breach for a breach of the peace, you've actually got to be physically committing that offence. Yeah. So you might be standing outside a shop hurling abuse at somebody or, or whatever or banging something together or you know trying to create a disturbance to get someone to come out and have a fight or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so that is a breach of the police actually taking place. They can arrest you at that point. But if... If there has been an incident earlier, earlier in the day, this is some sort of domestic, domestic um, uh, argument between whoever, wife, husband, brothers, sisters, um, and the police see you coming back to the house. So they're called to the house, they're at the house, they're talking to somebody about something that's already happened. They see you walking towards the house again and they think, well, you know, I'm being told about some big bust-up that's just happened and here you are coming back, you're looking very angry and you're carrying a stick. Um, that officer does not, and I don't think anyone would want them to have to have to wait for you to actually strike someone with that stick before they arrest you. It's pretty obvious what you're up to. It's pretty obvious that you're coming there to cause a problem. Um, they've got reason to believe that's what your intention is because of what they've heard that has already happened earlier in the day, and they can arrest you preemptively yeah. um, on the basis that they can see and reasonably judge in the circumstances that there is likely to be an imminent breach of the peace. So this is what comes in here, because the the, the police, as I understand it, were trying to justify their behaviour in part, not not, not totally, but on the basis that they were um, exercising their powers to try and prevent a breach of the peace. Well, that's the thing, it's this idea of preventative action. When does that kick in? in? And, And so we've actually got, you know... Looking at paragraph 66, there's quite a good quote where it says, When the breach appears to be imminent, but not before, all the various options, arrest, detention, restraint, warning, become available, and the officer can choose the option or combination of options that best fits the circumstances. Again, separate issues about proportionality afterwards, and we'll come to that. But it's this bit of not before that's quite key. And the reason, you know, sort of going forward, it then says Mr. Lambert, who knew all the relevant circumstances, so this is the officer with the decision-making power. Yeah, Yeah, uh, it says, in fact, considered that when the coaches reached Lechlade, a breach of the peace was not imminent. So that's his finding. Now, that made it a little bit, I would say, I wouldn't say easier, because by no means is this a, a, you know, a simple uh, judgment balancing the different rights. But when you've got... Um, it, and it is an agreed fact that the actual decision-making officer, if you like, has actually judged it as not imminent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of allows them to go and make the decision without argument of facts. Now, obviously, he could have assert, he could have tried to assert absolutely. a little bit tongue-in-cheek, perhaps that, that he did think a piece of the piece was imminent, and he could have been he could have held on to that account of events 
until he was blue in the face. And Absolutely. as you say, you'd then have a dispute of fact where he'd be suggesting that you know either he didn't genuinely believe that perhaps or or, or he shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's easier with sort of higher court decisions, Supreme Court or traditionally House of Lords, because mm. by the time it gets there, the facts are largely agreed. So when you yep. read their account of facts, if you like, in the judgments, you can pretty much assume that is what has been ruled upon, mm. whereas perhaps in lower courts you've naturally got the two parties, you say A happened, I say B happened, and then the court's going to decide what facts they're choosing. Yeah. By the time it gets to this stage, those sort of facts have been ironed out. You know, you may not necessarily agree with how the court's ruled about that fact, but in this case, you know, they're not arguing the, the issue about imminence or whether he thought it or didn't think it, because it's already an agreed fact. Okay, mm. slightly helpful that he doesn't actually yeah. dispute it himself. So, so the, way, the way I read this was yeah. that, um, and obviously I haven't heard all of you know, Officer Lambert's evidence, but yeah. I suspect that his answer to the question is what would have been if he was sitting here today. Um, well, I thought there was probably a reasonable chance that had this coachload of people actually got to where it was intending to go, that there might have been a breach of the peace at some point in time. Mm. But if you're asking me here and now, did I think it was imminent? In other words, was it going to happen in the next hundred yards or mm. of the travelling of the bus? Then, then, then no, it wasn't imminent. Um, but that is the test. Yeah, absolutely. you know that is the test. Is it happening now? No. Is it imminent? Well, some hours in the future might happen. That's not good enough. Well, absolutely. And and so then that's where you look at sort of what they would call proportionality. And this is proportionality yeah. within the context of the common law. Yes, it exists within the context of you know human rights laws and and sort of EU law and, and various different ways. But this is talking about it sort of you know, something that's existed in, in sort of UK jurisprudence for quite some time. Yeah, and I think I think what's, what, what we've um, sort of like extracted here at paragraph 90, which we can read out to you yeah, now, cool. I think that's a, that this, this explains hopefully to, to our, our, our watchers and listeners um, where proportionality comes in. So, yeah, paragraph 90, um, uh, one of the judges said, I'm unable to hold that stopping the coaches and all their passengers, including peaceful demonstrators such as the claimant from going on to Fairford would have been the only practical way of preventing an imminent breach of the peace in the circumstances. For this additional reason, stopping the coaches from proceeding was not lawful at common law and so infringed the claimant's Article 10 and 11 rights. So again, he's to me, he's saying, well, uh, to a certain extent, he's He's saying that you know the, the 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 police have got as we've said before they can arrest they can detain restrain warn or they can they've got powers that they can use. Yeah. Um, you know it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the only way of dealing with it was to stop them going and turn them around and take them back yeah. to London because well, it makes it almost seem like it's black and white. Yeah. Option one allow them to go. Option two send them all the way back to London where they're not allowed to leave the coach, as if those yeah. are the only two options yeah. available. Nothing else was was attempted. They could have gone on there, given them warnings or, or whatever. You, you do this, you do that, we'll turn you round. But then no attempt to make that, not, no attempt to, to um, deal with things in a less heavy-handed way was... Yeah. was, was and and was certainly attempted. key fact is, the, is in their preparation, I think they had prepared for as much as 10,000 people to be at this demonstration. Yeah. Yeah. And at that particular time, I think there was only two or 3,000 there. And the people on the coach was only 120 of them. So putting that yeah. in a sort of proportionality yeah. context... And, you know, I mean, just 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 talk thinking out loud. Nobody was 
you know, kicking off or throwing things or chucking Molotov cocktails or, you know, it, it, it was a situation that they were fully in control of. Yes. They, you know, these, these um, coaches parked at the side of the road, they did find some, uh, some, some, some weapons on board, they took those then, and some people were removed. Some people were allowed off, mm-hmm. so they clearly were being reasonable. Well, exactly, it's not a blanket thing people. in the end. No, um, and they, in some ways it probably harmed their case that they actually were reasonable in relation to some people and then just treated other people completely indiscriminately and say, right, we've all, all you lot are now going back to London and we're going to escort you there. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was heavy-handed. They didn't look at the other options and, and the reality is that they, that they have to. Yeah. And they certainly can't use breach of the peace where in circumstances, factually, it, it, just, wasn't, it just wasn't imminent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, going to sort of paragraph... 101 you've got Lord Carswell he says he agrees with the opinion that the test is imminence and not reasonableness mm. I'm not going to go too much into reasonableness whatsoever but essentially that was the the, the attempted argument from the police mm. um, and I think certainly always interesting that one of the barristers for the police uh, Simon Freeling QC was the, the barrister arguing their case now one of the judges for police action cases in central London County Court you can read into it what you wish yeah. um, <laughs> But they yeah. essentially were trying to get it to be a bit less stringent. Yeah, but th- 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 it should be obvious that that, that was, wasn't going to work. I mean, the judge saying that the test is imminence and not reasonableness is is clearly correct. Yes, and with respect to anyone arguing different differently, blindingly obvious. The power being asserted was to arrest for, for, for an imminent breach of the peace, and therefore the test is imminence yes. in relation to the power being exercised. It can't. You can't just read in reasonableness to something to a, to a power being used. You have to look at the power and apply the rules for that power. And reasonableness is not one of them. So um, yes, uh, good decision, right decision. Hopefully, um, it illuminates um, how these how these tensions you know, uh, have to be um, determined when you when you get into a court court situation. And certainly, at the end, we'll remind people. But I suppose the key takeaway is about this imminence issue. Yeah. And, and in this situation, the lack of imminence was central to the decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So are we going to move on to the yes. second case now? Which yeah, is exactly. I mean, the nature of the cases, they are long. We're not intending to go through all of them or at least every sort of different um, you know, idea from the judges. But sort of looking at the next one, Hicks, this is sort of coming towards 2017 when this case comes out, albeit the actual circumstances aren't from something that... Exactly. Um, So the circumstances, and um, you've got uh, 29th of April 2011, uh, Prince William's wedding, and essentially you get different people who are arrested for uh, an imminent breach of the peace, or at least that's the allegation from the police, for uh, anti-royalist protests, if you like. Now, um, when it comes to this... Uh, decision. This is Supreme Court. You've got four appellants, um, and they weren't just the only ones. There was a, a whole host of different potential appellants, but they were treated as the test cases. Um, and for all intents and purposes, they aren't necessarily linked. Um, sort of paragraph three. Although we'll go back to it, so not to mix it up too much in order. But it it does say at paragraph three they're arrested in separate incidents. The grounds that their arrest was reasonably believed by the arresting officers to be necessary to prevent an imminent breach of the peace, taken to four different police stations, later released without charge after the wedding, and the risk of the breach of peace had passed. 
and their detention was sort of ranging from two and a half hours to five and a half hours. Yeah. So that gives a pretty good grounding, if you like, of where we're at. Um, certainly, I mean, if you, you know, looking at um, paragraph two, um, which um, it talks about the gold commander in this situation. And Again, the head honcho. Yeah, exactly. So just... And, and he talks about the two sort of strategic aims of, of that particular day. Mm. And the first one, provide a lawful and proportionate policing response to protest, balancing the needs and rights of protesters with those impacted by the protest. So there's your balance. And then, of course, yeah. maintaining public order. Yeah. Um, so they're the sort of, I suppose, what the police would say was their, their main goal for that day. Um the, de- the decision, and I'm not going to go through too much about it, but the decision, of course, does talk about Laporte. It talks about an even older case, Albert v. Lavin, which is a 1982 case, quite um, old, but, but again, traditionally seen as sort of your platform, if you like. Okay. Um, but of course, the, the difference between that and the reason we haven't gone through it too much is that is pre-Human Rights Act, um, albeit the ECHR still existed, mm-hmm. um, because it's a pre-human rights act, it obviously has different uh, thoughts, you know, within that process. Albeit the common law, um, still, in, you know, by nature about the common law, it's still developed throughout that time. Um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of looking forward, paragraph six seven sets out that permission to appeal was given. Uh, so they lost at the, the lower courts essentially. Um, so their appeal was on Article 5 grounds. Hmm. Uh, Article 5 grounds is about your right to liberty. Again, reminder, it's a qualified right, meaning it's not absolute. You cannot have a right to liberty at all times. The obvious example is imprisonment in of itself being the state restricting your rights. Yeah, so they, they wanted to protest in an Article yeah. 10, 11 sort of way, but yeah, this, this, this case turned on Article 5 issues. Yeah, absolutely. So Article 5 says you can't be um, detained other, other than via a procedure prescribed by law, um, and therefore, in my understanding of the case, what, what, what the lawyers and the court were looking at was whether or not um, the procedure prescribed by the power to arrest for a breach of the peace, mm. whether that was being operated correctly again. So again, it was looking at breach of the peace, how it operates. Yes. And they started from the Laporte basic position that um, the power to arrest can only be there if it's happening or is imminent. Yeah. So they were clear on what imminent meant. Um, but they then go on to look at this issue of um, the, the purpose of the arrest being to bring someone before a competent court. Well, that's certainly and, a new and, angle. And whether or not it is lawful for the police to use their um, uh, powers to arrest for a breach of the peace, when their intention um, perhaps always was simply to detain them, never take them before a court, and release them once the danger is over. In other words, once, once the, the wedding has, yes. has taken place. Well, that's the thing, because when they are detained... It isn't a question of they're just arbitrarily detained for longer and longer in order to be brought before a magistrate's court. The idea yeah. is that once that risk or imminence or you know has passed, then do the police have that ability to release them early as opposed to having the intention to arbitrarily sort of continue to detain them simply to take them before a magistrate's court. Mm. Um, I mean, paragraph 11, which talks about the Court of Appeal decision, it says it wasn't practicable to take them to a magistrate's court before release 
you know, within the confines of what's happening that day, and you know, the police are quite busy on that particular day. Yeah. But but if the situation deteriorated, or you know, further detention would have continued, and it may then have become practicable to take them before a magistrate's court. So, if five hours in, there's still a deterioration. However, you know, put, putting aside how that might be defined, um, it may be that that detention could have become ten hours, could have become twelve. You know, and and yeah. then. At that point, it becomes possible to take them to a magistrate's court. You know, do you need to hold them that much longer? Um, so, and, and then Article, uh, sorry, Paragraph Twenty Nine. Um, it talks about Article Five, the fundamental principle, uh, and sort of twin objectives, if you like. So, um, the need to protect the individual from arbitrary detention, and an essential part of that protection is timely judicial control. But at the same time, Article 5 must not be interpreted in such a way as would make it impractical for the police to perform their duty to maintain public order and protect the lives and property of others. Uh, and so that's sort of, like you said right at the beginning of the video, yeah. when you've got competing interests, if you like, and deciding which one has primacy. Um, and so certainly this one highlights that situation. Um, it talks a lot about um, a sort of ECHR case we won't talk about it too much but this Ostendorf the basic facts um, being that this applicant who did lose his case was a known football hooligan ends up in a pub with opposition fans etc and ends up going into a women's bathroom and I think the police happen to sort of be there Surveilling him or undercover. Yeah, he was trying to climb out a window, probably. Yeah, it's essentially that's that's the, that, that's yeah, the yeah. allegation. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he is arrested, and I think he's let go an hour after the match finishes. Situ- and that's the general situation. Mm. He loses, but w- what's interesting is actually the the court here um, preferred the minority view in that case. Yeah, uh, and that's what they actually sort of rule on, and and it. And it also shows that to some degree we're not just blindly bound by absolutely everything that comes through. You know, our courts do have some power to, you know, use their own views about common law. Of course, there is always um, problems in terms of if courts aren't using precedent, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, providing that precedent isn't um, wrong, if you like. Obviously, things change in precedent on, you know, we're not bound by absolutely everything that came out in 1900s. Um, you know, yeah. we, we have sort of moved on with certain things, actually. I mean, this, this is just an, uh, well, not just, but it, it is an example of how quite often cases are um, decided quite properly and appropriately, but with a view to actually a- arriving at a common sense yeah. outcome. Because if it was the case that the, the police could be criticised and sued for wrongful arrest and false imprisonment, if they arrested someone for breach of the peace but didn't take them before the court, then clearly what the police would have to do would be to unnecessarily detain people longer than they need to just to bring them before the court to avoid a civil claim for compensation, rather than, as the individual almost certainly in the vast majority of cases will prefer, for instance, getting drunk, you know, getting arrested for breach of the peace when you're drunk or something like that, they allow you to sober up overnight and they kick you out in the morning. Um, that, you know, that did used to happen an awful lot, not as much these days, but that still does happen in, in, in some circumstances. And I'm sure that person would rather not be detained unnecessarily to go before a court. They'd rather they get released at the point at which the police know that the danger of a breach of the peace is over mm-hmm. um, and, and they're okay to leave. Um, 
so uh, to my mind um, a common sense judgment and you can see why you know taking another quote here it would be perverse if police were forced to continue to detain to uh, forgive me perverse if the course if the police are forced to continue detention to bring someone before a court um, unnecessarily yeah uh, basically exactly. so opposed to that idea of early release upon yeah. the imminence or risk passing essentially yeah um, and th- that's the thing I mean the, the issue isn't about naturally whether we agree or disagree with Hicks it's just simply you know in, in this case Hicks is a sort of recent example they they do lose their appeal um, and you know there is an issue in regards to um, certainly when they're defining you know these previous sort of decisions in Ostendorf and the sort of final bit if you like sort of taking paragraph 40 um, where you know, up until that point in the judgment, they've been sort of looking at Article 5 in a lot of detail, which I have no intention of looking at right now because, you know, of time. But they talk about the practical considerations for the police. It was, is it necessary to take action to prevent an imminent breach of the peace in circumstances where there is not sufficient time to give a warning? And the example they give, so this is a direct quote, it says an example might be a football match where two unruly groups collide and the police say, see no alternative but to detain them or the ringleaders on both sides immediately for what may be quite a short time, um, but basically if that power didn't exist, it could leave the police effectively powerless, is, is essentially yeah. the concern that they have. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly, you know, those two cases, they do work in conjunction. You've got, you know, Laporte, a winner, if you like, putting it, uh, and Hicks, not a winner. Um, but... You know, you're having that balance, and, and certainly, you know, that test of imminence again does arise. Mm. Um, certainly, in that situation. Yeah. Uh, and so, I think really the last thing we're just going to really talk about is some of the even more recent issues. Um, only for a little bit, but certainly in regards to Article Ten, more than Article Eleven. Yeah. Um, so this is about you know the freedom of speech and there are different speech offences which again you know under terrorism act and various different things about incitement if you like which is perhaps where that sort of line gets crossed is about what we call drill music um essentially um you know again i don't i'm not sitting here to give you people a history of drill music but essentially certainly in london at the moment you know there is um, rap music where in sort of May, June this year, a particular group were given criminal behaviour orders, um, which, like you mentioned, replaces ASBOs, yeah. and it's preventing them from making music, essentially. Um, now, well, the suspicion is, is well, that they're making songs yeah. in order to, in effect, um, pass on, perhaps even preach in some sense, um, hate yeah, that's and, and incitement to violence or terrorism and they're doing it through music uh, in order to try and, uh, and, and hide it yeah. Yeah, and try and make it permissible well, in certain songs I mean, where it wouldn't be if they stood on a box in the street yeah exactly so on the one hand you know there's the argument that if you made a direct threat to somebody you know, that would quite clearly be something the police could do something about if you put music to it and say it's art if you like then yeah. you know suddenly it, it changes it now I, I think the key issue certainly from my perspective is um, how sort of as a society which includes the police are viewing 
sort of social problems. Drill music isn't particularly new insofar as music, since it's pretty much existed, has always been a sort of method and art form to talk about... Yeah, to express social... Exactly. Explore social issues. Absolutely. And so so often it's a question of, well, has the actual music caused anything or is it realistically just expressing the reality of what those people might be living and it doesn't mean you have to like the music, much like you don't have to like particular types of art, you don't have to like particular types of theatre shows. Mm-hmm. But and, and no one's forcing you to either listen to it, watch it, whatever the situation is, but that balance, you know, we are in a democracy where certain things may cause us offence, but just because it causes you offence, that doesn't mean it actually needs to be banned, because you sort of start to verge on almost totalitarianism at that point. And we are in a slightly different age with terrorism. It's this human rights balance again that we sort of started started this episode with. I mean, it's just another example yeah. of of how, on this occasion, with with certain things thought to or, or found to be drill music, that that um, you know the courts have ruled that, that that you know somebody has gone too far and yeah. persuaded the, the the courts been persuaded that um, that the intention was not. Yeah purely artistic and I think certainly in another video which we'll talk about stop and search where there is related issues where actually you're talking about you know urban problems social deprivation problems you know alternate social issues about health education employment which realistically are looking more at the root causes of issues and trying to perhaps solve them rather than necessarily always looking at the consequences and thinking just simply shutting things down is going to solve everything um and again it's politics it's slightly different to necessarily pure law but the reason obviously law ends up being relevant is because you know people you know factually they were given these criminal behavior orders so the actions that they're allowed to take their freedom has now been restricted and has now been limited Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of um sort of charities and and uh, campaign groups if you like um index and censorship being one of them for example who have real problems with this and certainly as lawyers we can certainly understand um, you know we do come from a claimant perspective which does mean we have an inherent you know to some degree a bias if you like on that regard and, and that's no real secret but it, it does mean you know we from the claimant perspective we do understand about unduly restricting rights and perhaps the question of whether the police are necessary you know we, we totally understand there can be a problem but it's about is that necessarily the best method to solve it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly, you know, watch our stop and search video. It'll talk a lot more about, again, you know, blanket ideas of trying to sort of prevent consequences, but not necessarily always looking at root causes issues and and the fallout, if you like, in terms of certainly, mm. um, you know, allegations, racial discrimination and sort yeah, of racial right. targeting. Yeah, I mean, obviously the police have to deal with problems, but the answer in perhaps in a rather blunt way isn't always to stamp on it with the heaviest boot that you've got oh, absolutely you, you've got to do things appropriately and that's the interaction of politics and police because yeah. ultimately politics is what's going to decide what powers they have the police execute those powers and they can say what powers they want but it's actually for i suppose the politicians if you like and campaign groups to sort of educate them as to what actually is the best solution for both the communities that are most affected, but also perhaps, you know, you looking at the UK as a more sort of wider scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, 
we hope you found that um, discussion helpful. Perhaps a, a key takeaway that I'd like to highlight at the end of this video is that you know Article 1011 rights, even Article 5, as we've also touched upon with, with Hicks, are qualified rights. In other words, there might be balancing um, considerations that a court needs to take into account. Um, but certainly with police and um, their powers to arrest, uh, to prevent a breach of the peace, this question of imminence is clearly central, um, but clearly also Hicks clarifies that there is a need to be sensible with, with any um, um, terribly restrictive uh, interpretation of how that power should be used. And certainly, although the intention um, for it to um, counteract any Article 5 rights needs to be to perhaps to come to, to be brought before a court, it's not unlawful if they don't get brought before a court. Um, the fact is they, they, they might be an intention to do so or they might be brought before a court, but um, they don't ha that doesn't have to happen. Yeah. Uh, and um, that certainly, uh, certainly strikes me as um, reasonable in all the circumstances that, uh, that the court would fear that, that would leave the police powerless in certain, in certain circumstances where I think is just speaking as a general member of the public, um, giving them the right to deal with you know, football hooliganisms or riots and other fracas that might occur in the street, you, you would want them to have those powers. Mm. Um, but as always, whatever, you know, with power comes responsibility and you've got to exercise that power properly. And, and that's why court, you know, courts and cases and people like us explore the issues and, and try to look at, um, at, at the rights and wrongs of them. Yeah. Link any particular takeaways? I mean, just the, the nature of cases, which we've said many, many times, they are fact-specific. Yes, absolutely. Particularly in the port, with, absolutely. Um, with the officer actually taking the view and giving evidence that he, he accepted it wasn't imminent at the time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. if you had a dispute on that, uh, then it would be a different kettle of fish. But, but essentially, it means if you've got a potential issue, if you've got any questions, come and ask us, talk to us. You know, yeah. th there isn't you know, the, the nature of imminence it is. Um, it depends on literally what happened that day. What did the officer think? And looking at sort of objective factors, subjective factors, a whole host of different things, um, and then you know, understanding whether that police power, that yes, like you mentioned about detention, restraint, all these different powers that exist, it's when or at what point in the history or the timeline of that particular situation did that power become actually exercisable? Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Well, once again, thank you for watching. I hope you found it useful. Um, there's lots of other videos in this series uh, you might want to watch. Uh, if you do, if you have found it useful, feel free to share it and click on subscribe. Take care. Thank you for watching.